0: Hello, welcome back. I am Glenn McDorman, and this is ATOS, your troubadour love song speculative fiction book club podcast by Clay Temple Media. This month we are talking about a song for Arbonne by Guy Gabriel Kay. This was a novel published in 1992. This is a book that is dear to my heart, very dear to my heart. Really, more so than any of the books that we've done so far on this show. I read this book my sophomore year of high school, and it set me on the path to my current career as a medieval historian. And we're going to talk more about this in our themes and motifs segment, but this novel is in some sense a high fantasy adaptation of the 13th century Albigensian crusade in which Southern France was conquered by Northern France. And because I loved this novel so much back when I was 15, I wanted to read more about that historical event and there is a direct line from reading popular history books on the Albigenson crusade to my choice to major in medieval history in college when I got out of the army. And indeed, in college, my first major research paper as an undergraduate was on a particular aspect of this event of the Albigenson crusade. And if ATAS is your first clay temple media podcast, then you may not know that I also do a medieval history podcast called. Agnes, the Late Antique, Medieval, and Byzantine podcast. And on this show, I interview other scholars about their work, and I am hoping to get a Crusades historian on there soon. So if you're interested in history, you can check that show out too, and I'd I'd love it if you did. So take a deep breath. I mean, a really deep breath. This is going to be a big episode, and let's dive into a song for our bones. Now, naturally, I am excited to revisit a book that has been so important to me, but I'm also really thrilled because we are finally talking about a book from the high fantasy subgenre, Now, I'm sure that there are a lot of definitions about this term out there in the fandom, and of course, also a lot of arguments about how to define that term. So let me just say that I am using the term high fantasy simply to mean a fantasy story that takes place entirely in an imaginary, self-contained world that has its own rules and uh, its own properties. The Lord of the Rings, of course, is the, the classic example of high fantasy, but there is also Game of Thrones. And I think it's fair to say that for a lot of people, high fantasy is fantasy. And this was certainly true for me as an adolescent. This was really all I read in the fantasy genre during my formative years. And I expect that we'll read a lot more of this subgenre as we go. Now, this is not universally the case, but I think that it often makes sense to begin any dive into a work of high fantasy by talking about the world before we actually get into the plot and the characters and, and what's going on. Inside of the world, so let's do that first. Let's take care of the the world building. In a song for Arbon, Kay imagines a world that is more or less similar to Western Europe during the High Middle Ages, which is the the classic period of the Middle Ages, uh, the more or less between the year one thousand and then the onset of the Black Death in thirteen forty eight. So. This is a world with knights and castles, it's got kings and counts, and it's a continent full of people speaking different languages and arranged in independent polities, independent political communities, but it is a continent that shares a common religion And that religion is going to be important. So that's where I want to start today. So we don't actually know all that much about the religion, but because Kay is working within a high medieval paradigm, he's able to insinuate a lot about it by simply presenting us with a priestly monotheism that is at least broadly similar to medieval Christianity. There's a single god whose name is Karanos, and he has priests and temples. There is some kind of hierarchy among those priests, though it's not clear if that organization necessarily supersedes political boundaries. In fact, it seems like probably it doesn't. What is clear, though, is that this religion is at least nominally important for lay people as well. And in this world, knights are called Qurans, and they are officially members of the order of Karanos, who have been consecrated by a priest. Now, sadly, we don't ever see this consecration in action in the book, but we can envision something similar to a medieval knighting ceremony, uh, perhaps very much like the one that's described by Raymond Loll in the, the 13th century. Now, there is a catch to the universality of this religion on this continent. There is one region where a variation of this religion is practiced, and of course, that region is Arbonne, where our story is going to take place People in Arbonne worship the god Karanos, but they also worship the goddess Rian, whom they regard as even more important. And indeed, the clerical organization of Rian is closely affiliated with the ruling family of Arbonne. And this religious difference is going to drive the central conflict of the book. But that said, the plot actually hinges on geopolitics. So I think it's time to turn our attention to the geography. Arbonne is one of six linguistically distinct regions on this continent, and and you'll notice that I am carefully avoiding using the words country and state here, and there will be more on that in the next segment, a, a lot more on that. So, all right. So, Arbonne is one of six regions, and these are all loosely based on Western Europe in the High Middle Ages. Arbonne is southern France, and then there are other correspondences to northern Italy, to Germany, Spain, and also England. But the region that matters most after Arbonne is Gorho, and this corresponds to northern France and is, therefore, the northern neighbor of Arbonne. Now, there are two things that matter about Gorho, and the, the first is that it has been involved in a protracted war with its neighbor Valencia, which is the analog to England in this world, and Gorho has just lost a massive chunk of territory to Valencia, in a, a peace treaty that followed a devastating military defeat The second thing to know is that Gorho is the center of the Karanos religion. This is where the god Karanos was born long ago, in the days before the creation of humans, and it is therefore where the high elder of Karanos resides. This high elder is a a man named Galbert de Garçon, and he despises the people of Arbonne because of their religion. It's, It's a religion that he regards as a heresy. And there is a great passage about this fairly early in the book when Galbert is calling for the king of Gorho to invade Arbone and to destroy the Rian religion, destroy this heresy. Galbert says, Gorho is the heartland, the place where Koranos of the ancients was born in the days before man walked and woman fell into her ruin. Uh, and then a little later, Galbert says, Beyond the mountains south of us, they mock Karanos. They live under the God's own bright sun, which is the most gracious gift to man. And they mock his sovereignty. They demean him with temples to a woman, a foul goddess of midnight and magics and the blood-stained rites of women. They cripple and wound our beloved Koranos with this heresy. They unman him, or they think they do. So we can see that Misogyny is very much at the heart of this hatred and hostility. I mean, he's even drawing on imagery that is, is meant to evoke menstruation here. And clearly, as he says, Galbert thinks of women as fallen or debased. And the fact that women play a role in the religious life of Arbonne really disturbs him. And on top of that, Arbonne in general fails to uphold Galbert's standards of misogyny. The the current ruler is a a woman, and the defining aspect of Arbonne culture is troubadour love poetry. This is a literature that places elite women at the center of society and encourages women to have sexual relationships with men who are not their husbands, uh, namely troubadours, though not limited to troubadours, of course. And while the plot of the book culminates in The Invasion of Arbonne, the, the book is really about Arbonne culture, and, and it's especially about troubadours. So now that we are many minutes into our recap, it is probably time to actually get around to meeting our protagonist, through whose eyes we will see Arbonne and the rest of this imaginary world. And that protagonist is Blaise de Garçon, the younger son of the high elder of Caranos, Galbert de Garçon. When we meet Blaze, he's been working as a mercenary soldier for several years, and this is despite the fact that he's a a member of a wealthy and politically powerful family. Blaze was deeply upset by the the treaty that ceded the northern part of Gorho to Valencia, a a treaty that was largely the work of his own father. Blaze was at the battle that led to this treaty. He saw his king killed and also many of his comrades, and so for him— this treaty was a betrayal by the, the new king, a, a young king, uh, and, and even perhaps a, a sort of treason. Blaze begins the novel working for a small-time local lord in Arbonne, but he is quickly recruited by one of the major players in Arbonne politics who has figured out who Blaze is, even though Blaze never uses his patronym. While Blaze is running around having various adventures throughout Arbonne, such as kidnapping a troubadour and participating in the regional holidays and, and festivals, we get a series of cutscenes in Garho. And, and that's where the, the speech from Galbert de Garcin comes from. And through these cutscenes, it becomes clear that Garho is going to use the security of the treaty with Valencia to invade Arbonne. And our Arbonne characters are, are not unaware of this either, right? This is a fact that, that, that seemingly all of the politically astute people throughout this continent are aware of. In these cutscenes, we also meet the rest of Blaze's family, and especially his sister-in-law, Rosala, who is pregnant. Rosala is afraid of her father-in-law, the High Elder, and she is also afraid of the new king, who puts his own misogyny into practice by using his station to sexually assault women without any kind of consequence, and who very obviously to everyone has his eye on Rosala. And really, her pregnancy is kind of a a countdown clock for him. And we're going to talk more about Rosala's experiences in the next segment. But what matters for the recap, and, and we are nearing the end of the recap, what, what matters here is that Rosala flees to Arbonne and receives political asylum for herself and and then for her infant son, who is is born in Arbonne. In the end, Blaze declares himself the rightful king of Gorho, and there is a big battle in Arbonne to, to settle the matter. Blaze, along with his Arbane allies, and, and also a not insignificant number of disaffected Gorhoshans, win the day, and Blaze becomes king, and his father, Galbert, is killed. There are a dizzying number of personal stories that I have left out of the recap, That we'll talk about some of them in upcoming segments, and these all get neatly and, and really very happily wrapped up in the end as well. Uh, there's at least one wedding, uh, a secret child, and a redeemed buffoon. It, it's all actually quite Shakespearean, and it's it's really rather emotionally satisfying. Kay is an emotional writer above all else. And that's the plot wrapped up. So this brings us to the end of A Song for our bone, where there is still a lot, a lot to talk about. So let's jump into some themes and motifs. Now, look, I am a medieval historian. So naturally, my entry into thinking about A Song for bone is through the historical Alba Crusade and the High Middle Ages. And, and I should say that I'm recording this episode really only a very few days after I have finished up teaching a course on war and society in the High Middle Ages. So this is really the lens through which I'm viewing this fantasy novel. All right. So the Alba Crusade, as it says on the box, this was a crusade, a papally sanctioned holy war. And it began in 1209 and ended-ish in 1229. Now, most crusades involved Western Christian armies fighting non-Christians outside of Western Christendom. Uh, This would be the Holy Land, Egypt, Tunisia, Spain, of course. And Kay has another book all about this, The the Lions of al rasan and also Northeastern Europe uh, against Slavs, against pagan non-Christians. But the Albigensian Crusade has the distinction of being waged within Western Christendom and against other Christians. Christians deemed heretics, but Christians nonetheless, and and we'll come back to that in, in, in just a minute. The Albigensian Crusade was largely undertaken with the support and leadership of the French royal family, but it's important to note that in this case, the Kingdom of France was limited to only a, a very small part of what we today think of as France, really just north-central and northeastern France. Almost all of western France was ruled by the kings of England. In this book, that's Valença, which really seems to be Normandy, the region of France that was an important part of the English crown. And southeastern France was a semi-autonomous region of the Holy Roman Empire, uh, Greater Germany, really, we might call it. And finally, we come to the part of France on which Arbonne itself is based, which is south-central France, the Languedoc, And this was a a patchwork of independent polities, independent political communities that recognized the the suzerainty of the Count of Toulouse and and also, in some cases, the suzerainty of the Count of Barcelona, uh, but not sovereignty, necessarily. And people in this region spoke a distinct language called Occitan or, or Occitanian, and, and that's really what Languedoc means. It's the, it's the place where people use "oc" for yes, and is contrasted to the Languedui, where people say oui for yes. The culture of the Languedoc was distinct from the culture of France in a number of ways besides just language, and I'll talk about two of these. But let's start with religion, since that seems to be very much uh, on the face of this book. By definition, a crusade is a religious war. And in this case, it was a war to stamp out the Albigenson heresy. And in Albigenson, by the way, just means having to do with the area around the town of Albi. It's a gorgeous place. You should visit it. And in a song for our bone, this heresy is represented by the Rian religion, a religion that doesn't deny Caranos's existence, but a religion that has a different theological understanding of who Caranos is and also, and maybe especially, of his relationship with Rian, who is also acknowledged in the Orthodox Koranos religion. The heresy that the Crusaders wanted to stamp out in southern France is called Catharism, and the people who practice it are called Cathars. For medieval and and also early modern theologians, Catharism was a a, a dualist and and also an anti-materialist heretical form of Christianity. Cathars believed in God, and they regarded the Bible as scripture, but they thought that they lived in an ongoing battle between the forces of good and evil, or or God and Satan, we should say. Now, on top of that, the material world, which is to say the world that we live in, the physical world, was not, for Cathars, the creation of God, but was in fact the creation of Satan, and therefore it is an evil place. And because the world is an evil place, it is sinful to reproduce, right? It's it's sinful to condemn souls, to live inside this vile prison. And it's also sinful to delight in eating or other bodily pleasures. And bodies themselves are evil. And this belief, this belief in the evilness of bodies necessarily runs into some problems in Christianity, which is centered around the idea that God himself was once incarnated, once embodied in the form of Jesus Christ right in Christianity god for a time took on a body but if bodies are evil and if god gave himself a body then is god evil this is a question that might arise from these two incompatible beliefs and so, Cathars then had to have a complicated understanding of Jesus Christ and the extent to which he had a body and and also whether he was really God and so on in order to to reconcile these uh these two cosmologies Now, none of this makes its way into a song for our bone and, and we'll get back to that in a moment, but before we do, I want to say that that scholars now tend to think that everything I just told you about cathar religion cathar beliefs is wrong, that it was all invented or uh, at least exaggerated by the Inquisition, uh, which was invented during this crusade, and also by later writers. And indeed, much of this scholarly work got started in the late 80s and the early 90s, around the time that Kay was writing a song for bone. So there was kind of just something in the air about renewed interest in the Albigensian Crusade and the Cathars that Kay was really tapped into. And if you're interested in reading more about this, I'll, I'll suggest two books. And, and one of them is by my fellow Princetonian, a scholar named Mark Pegg. And his book is called A Most Holy War, The Albigenson Crusade and the Battle for Christendom. And the other book that I'll I'll recommend is The War on Heresy by R.I. Moore, another great scholar. Both of these are, are absolutely fascinating works of scholarship. Okay, let's get back to Arbonne. So, we can see a, a very loose parallel with Catharism in the idea that there are two deities here, Rian and kiranos though this is not really a form of, of dualism in the book. But for the most part, Kay has abandoned any of the particulars of Catharism, and instead what he's done is adapt some of the other cultural distinctions between northern and southern France to suit his purposes. And uh, this is probably a good move, because I think the Venn diagram of people who are super into Christian theology and also super into fantasy novels is more or less monopolized by Gene Wolf fans at this point. So what Kay does instead here is is make this about women, and and in particular, about misogyny, about the deep hatred and fear of women. And we've seen already in the recap segment that the Karano's religion believes that women are fallen creatures and that men are not. And this has an obvious parallel in some Christian interpretations of Adam and Eve and the fall of man and uh, original sin. And Galberta Garcanc hates women, and seemingly so does his entire culture, though though Blaze, his son Blaze, is uh, exempt from this, or at least has an arc where he comes to grow out of this. When we see much of this, much of this misogyny, this hatred of women from the perspective of the character Rosala, who fears for her body and fears for her life, and because of that eventually flees Gorho because she refuses to allow a daughter to grow up with these same fears— or to allow a son to be raised like this, to be raised to hate women as as just a part of his identity. And Kay takes this a a step further, even. I I think, actually, it's a a step too far. Uh, He does this by, by giving us a young king of Gorho, who is a sexual predator who openly pursues the wives of other members of the ruling class and who holds court while he is receiving oral sex from a, a serving woman, from a, a waitress, essentially. All of this is contrasted in bone, where a woman rules and where there is a female god and a female high priest— and on top of this, moreover, in our bone, love poetry venerates women for their beauty, of course, but also for their, their secular attributes, you know, their, their wit, their intelligence, their uh, ability to make people laugh, right? Their sense of humor and, and, and so on. And the women of the ruling class, although they are married young and, and married off by their fathers without their own input or, or real consent, uh, the women of the ruling class nonetheless take lovers as they please. Now, in our popular culture, we tend to think of the High Middle Ages as an inherently misogynistic culture, or at least as a an inherently sexist culture, right? Men held power and lived public lives. Well, women worked in the home, or, you know, in the case of elite women, were even more or less held prisoner in castles and, and deemed important only as part of real estate deals. The reality, of course, is much more complicated than this. But this picture that we have in our pop culture does derive from some important scholarship of the middle and and late 20th century. And it's scholarship that Kay says that he has read in his acknowledgments at the, the beginning of this book. And in particular, Kay has read the work of the French historian Georges Duby, who is really one of the most important medievalists of the 20th century. In a series of books and articles between 1950 and 1985, Duby described the aristocratic culture of northern France during the High Middle Ages as a rape culture. And here, Duby points to the fact that women were married off at ages that make us, as moderns, extremely uncomfortable. I mean, twelve, thirteen, fourteen—you know, these are people who are married off as girls, as children, as as people utterly incapable of giving informed consent. In, in Duby's interpretation of some of the narrative sources of this time and place, aristocratic women were largely powerless and were completely separated from society. And uh, Duby's argument also makes use of a, a number of religious texts, and he uses these to, to point to changing conceptions of marriage during the High Middle Ages. Uh, this is things such as a new emphasis on clerical celibacy, right? The, the forbidding of priests from marrying and having children. We're really two generations on from Duby's scholarship. And, and most scholars now no longer accept Duby's picture of medieval elite society. And this is a, a picture that is really framed by the types of sources Duby used. And, and really, it's, it's framed even more so by the types of sources that he didn't use. And this question uh, was high medieval society a rape culture. This question was one of the historiographical debates that my students conducted in my War and Society in the High Middle Ages course this past semester. And when I do these debates, these historiographical debates, I put the students in three groups and have them champion one scholar's answer to uh, a set of questions in in dialogue with or really I should say in argument with uh, with other scholars who have come to different conclusions, conclusions that can't all be true at the same time. And I also always have a, a group of student judges decide the winner of the debate. And in this case, Duby's interpretation received no support from the student judges. But still, even though scholarship has moved on from this view, and, and even though no medieval king ever received oral sex on his throne in front of his court, Kay creates some compelling bad guys this way, and, you know, he champions the fair treatment of women, and that is certainly a good thing. And Kay has done more than just read George to be here. Kay has also done a lot of reading about Occitanian troubadours, which is a, a literary phenomenon of the 12th and 13th centuries. Troubadours wrote love poetry that was performed in elite households, or courts, if you prefer. Uh, performed in elite households throughout the Languedoc. And troubadours themselves were prominent members of Occitanian society. And uh, indeed, really, the the first troubadours were themselves members of the elite. And and this is something that Kay shows us in Arbonne as well. Troubadour Poetry places women at the center of elite social life in the Languedoc, but Troubadour Poetry is also foundational in the invention of romantic love as a cultural ideal, uh, the the real idea of romantic love, uh, the idea that it is something to be prized and prioritized. And so if you have read any book or seen any TV show with a love story in it, and you have, then you have experienced the legacy of Troubadour Poetry. So this really is one of the most significant inventions of the Middle Ages, and it is one of the most significant uh, developments in the history of literature. But on top of this, on on top of the invention of romantic love, and on top of the uh, centralization of women in elite social life, many women were troubadours themselves. And so the percentage of women who are writing literature in the Languedoc is much higher than in any other part of Western Christendom in the High Middle Ages. And the contrast between the place and the the role of women in this society, in Occitania, and that of Duby's image of northern France is it's stark and it's obvious. And it is something that many scholars have written about. And If this is something that interests you, this is something you'd like to read more about, then I really recommend the book by Meg Bogan called The Women Troubadours. And also the the George Duby book I suggest is The Knight, the Lady, and the Priest— and since I'm recommending books, I'll say that if you would like to contrast Duby uh, with one of the other scholars that I, I use in my class, uh, you should check out Kimberly Lopret's biography of Adela of Blois. Uh, these books are all great. They're all worth reading on their own, uh, but I think that you will especially enjoy them if you have been as captivated by Orbonne as I clearly have. All right. So to summarize this all up before we move on to the other theme that I want to talk about Kay has imagined the Alba Jensen Crusade as a, a real clash of civilizations between a misogynistic and bellicose culture and an urbane and gender equal culture. Now, throughout, of course, it is obvious who the bad guys are. And really, we might say that the thesis of this book could be something like, if more of us valued food and song and cheer above the oppression of women, it would be a merrier world. And I think this is a great theme, and I think this is a phenomenal way to appropriate the Middle Ages and to write a fantasy novel that is relevant for your contemporary world as a writer, the the, the contemporary world of your readers. Okay, let's take another deep breath before we move into this second theme of A Song for Arbonne. And, and this theme is nationalism and patriotism. And indeed, really, we might say that while Kay is very much exploring romantic love in his depiction of Arbonne's troubadour culture, his plot relies very much on a profound love of, of country, a deep patriotism. And we see this all over the book. The Arbane duke that Blaise works for as a mercenary, a man named Bertrand de Teller, is in a, a decades-long personal vendetta with another aristocrat named Erté de Miraval. And this rivalry threatens to undo the military security of Arbonne during the invasion from Gorho. And as we get to the climax of the book, Erte refuses to fight the invading army from Gorho if he will have to take orders from Bertrand. And when we get to the big battle, his army enters the fray very late and at a moment when it looks like he has decided to join forces with the invader because he hates Bertrand more than he loves his country. Now, This whole thing turns out to be a ruse. And as Urte is dying, he explains that of course he loves his country enough to set aside personal rivalries. Love of country, patriotism, is also at the core of Blaze's usurpation of the throne of Garho. Any king who sells off part of his country is a traitor to the people he is meant to protect. He's a, a genuine villain. And this belief pits Blaze even against his own family, uh, against his own... Father and his own brother. And so we see here that for our heroes, patriotism not only trumps personal rivalries, but it also trumps family loyalties. And part of what makes Galbert de Garçon a villain is that he identifies more with his religious identity than with his national identity. Though also, he is just a terrible human being who enjoys burning people at the stake. He's a a real sadistic, awful person. There is also a great scene near the end of the book. And and this is really one of my favorite moments in the whole novel. And this is a scene when musicians from around the the continent, from throughout Kay's fantasy world, are performing together at a fair. And there's a a bit of a a nationalistic rivalry going on here. And the musicians of Arbonne are are challenged to defend their reputation as the best musicians in the whole world. And the Arbonne performer who takes up this challenge says that although Troubadour songs are usually love songs, he's going to perform one that isn't. He then goes on to sing a pastoral piece about the olive groves and the vineyards and the mountains of Arbonne. And at the end of his performance, he corrects himself and says, on reflection, I did sing a love song, after all. And it is this patriotism, I think, that really sets our heroes apart from the villains, even more so than their treatment of women. And It's something that Kay is extolling as a virtue, right? Love of country is a good thing for Kay. It is one of the highest virtues we can have. Kay's plot also takes this idea up, and and he really envisions a type of 19th century balance of power intrigue story that is set in the high Middle Ages. And I love this type of story. But as fun as this is, this is a wholly anachronistic idea. And I want to just use this as an opportunity to, to spend some time now talking about nationalism. And this is something that I spent several weeks on in my Fall of the Roman Empire class last fall, where I discovered that my students really did not know what nationalism was coming into the class, that they thought it was just a synonym for patriotism, that like patriotism, nationalism just means loving your country. And so uh, I'd like to put my teacher hat on for a few minutes here and talk about the difference between nationalism and patriotism let's start with a a kind of primer on nationalism before we look at how it shows up in A Song for Our Bone. And we can get going by just talking about the word nation itself. We hear this word all the time in phrases like National Football League or National Security. And what we mean when we use the word national this way is the state we live in, right? When an American uses the word national, she means something that has to do with the United States, while uh, a Pakistani person would mean something that has to do with Pakistan. But this usage of nation, this idea that nation is just another synonym for state or country, this is a, a new usage, a new definition, right? Medieval kings and even the writers of the U.S. Constitution would have been confused by this usage of the word. And this usage grows out of a movement to reshape our ideas about group identities in the 18th and the 19th centuries. But if that's the case, then what does the word "nation" mean? Well, at its core, the the word is more or less a synonym for ethnic group. Uh, ethnic is a or ethne is a Greek word, and natio is a Latin word, right? Nation derives from this Latin word natio, which has this meaning. And we get other words from natio as well, like native, natal, and nativity. These all come from natio, and so you can see that it has something to do with being born. Maybe it's the place you were born or the group into which you were born. All right, so that's Natio. You know, so let's define nationalism. Now, nationalism is an intellectual movement or a, a belief system that has three key components. And the, the first is the, the belief that everyone belongs to a nation, as to say that everyone has an ethnicity, whether you want one or not. The second belief is that a person's national or ethnic identity is that person's most important identity, right? It trumps all of your other identities, family identity, civic identity, religious identity, even your sports affiliations. And finally, there is the belief that a nation and every nation should have the power of self-determination. That is to say, some kind of political power. Every ethnic group should have its own political power. And we live in this world, right? We all believe this to some degree or another. But as I've said, this is a new idea. This is a belief system that is invented in Europe in the late 18th century and, and really gains traction in the 19th. And so another way to think about this is to say that this belief, nationalism, is newer than the United States of America, right? The, the country that I'm recording this podcast in came into existence before this belief system did. And people who held this belief had to convince other people of it. They had to convert people to this way of thinking. They had to convince people that their ethnic identity was more important than their civic identity, for example, both at the city and the regional level. And we can look at some examples of this. and Let's start with Italy, which wasn't a state, wasn't a country until 1871. People on the Italian peninsula and in the islands that became part of the new state of Italy did not all speak the same dialect, and these regional differences weren't just a matter of silly accents, but could be as mutually unintelligible as French and Spanish are today. So part of the Italian nationalist movement relied on convincing people that if they lived in the new state of Italy, then they should all speak the same dialect rather than the dialect of their region or their hometown. And lots of people resisted this idea. And, you know, this is not a project that is really completed until even after the the Second World War. Another type of identity that nationalists had to talk people into minimizing in favor of ethnicity was religious identity, a very important identity for people. And, and this is actually something that we've seen already in A Song for Our Bone, where this is part of Galbert de Garcon's villainy, right? That he prizes, that he values his religious identity over his ethnic identity, his national identity. But in the real world here, Germany is a great example of this. Germany also wasn't a state, wasn't a country until 1871. And in this case, nationalists had to convince people in Bavaria and people in Prussia that they were the same ethnic group, the same people, the same nation, because they spoke the same language even though they had different religions. And those religious differences, those religions were something that their great grandparents had tried to kill each other over. I mean, tried to kill each other over real seriously and for a very long time. And this belief in nationalism was everywhere in the 19th century, but it always faced resistance and always faced challenges. And we can still ask ourselves today whether the United States is a nation, right? are we a single unified state with a single shared identity? Or are we a federation of 50 independent states with a plurality of identities? And the American Civil War was about this question. The southern states that seceded and formed the Confederate States of America, they believed that the U.S. was a federation that they could opt out of, while the states that remained disagreed. And there was a war about this. And from this point of view, we can even see the move to form the Confederate States of America in the first place as a nationalist move, as a move that is similar to the creation of Italy and the creation of Germany that are happening at this same time. Elites in the American South saw themselves as part of a a different culture, a, a different ethnic group than elites in the North. Now, this was largely wrapped up in the morality of slavery, but there were other elements to this as well. And because they felt like they had a distinct culture, they wanted to exercise their right to national self-determination, that third component of nationalism. And we fought an extremely bloody war about this question, about nationalism. Now, as I've said, we live in a nationalist world, right? We live in a world that is shaped by the belief system of nationalism. Everyone in our world has a national identity, whether they want one or not. But exporting this idea to the High Middle Ages is entirely anachronistic, and and we can return now to talking about the political boundaries of Western Christendom for an illustration of this. Today, we think of England and France as nations, but around the year 1200, this was simply not true. England was part of a much larger political community that included Wales, Ireland, Brittany, southwestern France, and Normandy and all of it was ruled by a French-speaking political elite, most of whom owned property in many of these regions. And this type of situation existed almost everywhere in Western Christendom during the High Middle Ages. Italy, for example, was politically divided and multi-ethnic, and the King of Aragon lived mostly in Catalonia rather than Aragon because he was also the Count of Barcelona. And also, there was no sense either that all French-speaking people ought to be members of a single political community, or that all German-speaking people should, and so on, though this was certainly the dream of 19th and 20th century nationalists around the world. But Kay takes this belief system for granted, as I think most of us do, certainly my students do, though I am sure I will say that, that Kay knows that it is anachronistic for the Middle Ages. I mean, he's said in his acknowledgments, he's done a lot of reading. But nonetheless, here in his speculative world, shows us a, a Germany that is united under a single strong king. And he shows us an Italy that is not a part of the same political community as Germany, though, in fact, it, it frequently was in the high Middle Ages. But the clearest instance of Kay's anachronistic nationalism has to do with the, the peace treaty between Garho and Valenza. The king of Valencia appears briefly in the book, and he's here really just to explain that although he wants Arbon to win the war with Gorho, he can't offer any actual material assistance to Arbon. And during his explanation, he says that since Gorho has ceded a huge chunk of territory to Valencia, he is busy repopulating this territory with Valensians. He says that he has to consolidate his hold on the land by getting Valencian farmers to move into this territory and to replace the Gorhosian farmers who have all left their land to go live on the other side of the new political boundary. So what Kay's is envisioning here is that if you are a Gorhoshian, then you can't, or at least you probably won't want to, live in Valensa. And This is certainly the idea that we have now in in our world, and and we can even think of the the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire and the creation of Turkey as a nation in the 1920s as an example of this. During this time, uh, about a million and a half people moved from Turkey to Greece because they weren't ethnically Turkish and therefore were not welcome in the new nation state of Turkey and in doing so they gave up ancestral farms and homes and even abandoned whole villages or city neighborhoods to do so and i should say by ancestral i mean we're talking thousands of years not just a few generations so this was a huge deal but this is an absurd idea for the high middle ages where political boundaries changed all the time but but nothing else really did right if you're a serf farming some land Your identity doesn't change just because a political boundary has changed around you or because you have a new lord. Indeed, the the serfs on these farms and even the few free farmers were really part of the object of conquest, right? you as a king or as, as a, a member of the political elite, you wanted the farmers as much as you wanted the farms. That's what you're fighting for. That's what you're trying to conquer in the first place. It's not just land, it's people. And you don't care about their cultural identities. You don't care about what language they're speaking. And they don't care about your cultural identity or the language you're speaking either. It is not an identity that matters to these people at all. Okay, so that's a lot about nationalism, but it has all been a kind of preamble to what I really want to say about a song for our bone and its relationship with the actual Albert Jensen Crusade. The High Middle Ages are really the birth of the modern world, right? Most of our public institutions developed during this time. These are things like universities and hospitals, but also the very idea of the state, that is to say, modern government, is developed during this time. At the beginning of the High Middle Ages, around the year 1000, the Kingdom of France was really just the city of Paris. But by the time of the the Black Death, the Kingdom of France includes almost all of the territory that is today considered France. And the kings of France acquired most of this territory around the year 1200 in two important conquests— the first of these was Normandy, which was taken from the kings of England. And, and this is really the historical analog to this treaty with Valencia that, that Kay uses here. And the other of these important conquests is the Albigensen Crusade, which brought an enormous amount of territory under the control of the king of France. And all of this new territory, both in Normandy and the Languedoc, all of this has to be administered through new techniques of government that develop into the state bureaucracies that we all live with today. And I'll say there's a a great book about this by the massively important scholar Joseph Strayer. This is a a book called On the Medieval Origins of the Modern State. It is one of my absolute favorite books of all time. I hope you'll check it out and come talk to me about it. Finally, and, and I mean it, finally, this conquest was an important moment in the development of modern nationalism as well. Because, over time, it erased Occitanian culture and replaced it with French culture, because the conquest came in the form of a crusade the uh, the form of a, a, an attack on the divergent religious practices and beliefs of southern France and Without this aspect of the conquest, the the French state may have continued to develop as a multi-ethnic multilingual state, and so uh, a common group ethnic identity might not have become important in the 18th century the way that it actually did. So the Abidjensin Crusade was an extremely significant event, the effects of which are still with us today. And I love what Kay has done with this idea. I love how Kay has taken some core ideas from a handful of historians he's read and and turned them into a fantasy novel, a fantasy novel which then turned me into a medieval historian— and I love what I do with my life. So I am immensely grateful for this. And, and I think this is a good note on which to to move into the, the strengths and weaknesses segment. This type of world building that Kay does is for me a real strength of this book and, and just about everything he's written since then. Kay just expertly creates a fully realized speculative world that is populated by a, a culturally diverse cast of characters. And even though our plot takes place on a rather small geopolitical stage, we as readers feel as if we know all about the wider world because of, of how Kay does this so masterfully. And, and really, it's his characters who are the greatest strength of Kay's writing. Every character has a complicated, eh, some might say an overly complicated, uh, emotional life everyone is carrying around a lifetime of baggage, maybe several lifetimes of baggage, really. And it shows in all their actions. And it shows in the way that they perceive uh, the actions of others, the way they interact with people. Every conversation, every action, every thought is full of emotional significance for Kay's characters. And he writes all of this just beautifully. But this is also a bit of a, a double-edged sword. And I have to say that the book's biggest weakness is the depiction of characters' love lives. In particular, Blaze, our protagonist, is romantically or, or sexually involved with three women. And, and really, we could get up to five if we want to be loose with our terminology here. And it's all a bit much. And none of it is ever consequential. And, and that's the real problem here, right? The, the plot of the book and even Blaze's own character arc could have progressed in exactly the same manner without this element. And I think it would have been improved without it. Even more than this, though, the love life of the Arbigny aristocrat Bertrand de Teller is just absurd. Bertrand is is haunted by the death of the love of his life and the the murder of his infant child by that woman's husband, Erte de Miraval, And I like this. There's a real gothic element to this family tragedy, and it nicely sets up an important element in the theme of patriotism. I'm on board with all of this. I think it's an awesome part of the book. But Bertram's mechanism for coping with this tragic loss, this profound grief, is to sleep with as many women as possible. And this is a behavior that he keeps up for more than 20 years, right? For more than half of his life, And Kay writes Bertrand as if he's utterly heartbroken all of the time, as if we're supposed to feel sorry for him, that he has to constantly have one night stands because his true love is dead. But it just doesn't work for me. In fact, I find it remarkably unsympathetic and even tedious. And although some minor elements of the the plot depend on Bertrand sleeping with, with particular women at particular times. I think Kay could have worked around all of that. Kay could have had those plot elements without this unsympathetic character attribute. I, I think this is a case where uh, Kay thought that he really was writing a, a sympathetic character, uh, but just wasn't. And, and And that's a real weakness. This is the most important weakness of the book. But even with that, I still think this is a fantastic read, and I would recommend this book to anyone. And I'm looking forward to revisiting more of Kay's works and also of reading uh, probably the four or five Guy Gabriel Kay books that I have not read, but that is looking ahead to the future. Wow. Okay. That is a long review. It is our longest yet, and I'm sure it's going to hold the record for more than a little while. But even with as much time as I spent on this book, there are some important aspects that I left out. And one aspect that really intrigues me is the, the theme of fate and free will, which we've we've talked about before on this podcast. And Kate gives us a lot of this near the end of the book when Galbert de Garcon gives his final villainous monologue in which he explains that even though he's going to die, everything that his son Blaze has ever done has been because he manipulated him into it, even declaring himself king. And so we're left wondering if Blaze, even in his emotional victory over his father, is actually still just doing his father's bidding, just his father's victim. There is also the presence of magic in this world, something I've really left out until now, Uh, the presence of magic in this world, which largely comes in the form of visions of the future. Uh, And of course, there's this whole business of the arrow that falls from heaven in the final battle, one of my favorite bits in the book. And all of this raises the question of, of really, for me, what is Kay saying about this? Is Kay saying that we do or don't have uh, control over our own fates, have free will, are or are we constrained by a variety of factors that we have no control over? Are we constrained by our family and friends? Is the future certain? Has it all been written out by a god of some sort and we're just playing it out uh, on a stage? And this is a theme that Kay takes up in in some of his other works as well. So uh, I hope you'll visit the ATOS forum at claytemplemedia.com and talk with me about this theme and, and also about the others that I've spent a lot more time on here And we can also talk about the poetry over there too, and the references to Kay's first major work, the Fiannaver tapestry. I love this book, and there is a lot to talk about. So come on over to the forum. Well, finally, that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDormand. You can find me and all our other creative projects at ClayTempleMedia.com, and that includes Agnes, the late antique, medieval, and Byzantine podcast, which I really do hope you'll check out. And if you end up reading any of the scholarly books that I've talked about in this episode, you can let me know on the Agnes Forum. I, I think by now you you know that I love talking about books, so so I'd love to have that conversation with you. On Twitter, I'm at GL McDormand, and the network is at Clay Temple Media. Next month, we're going to be reading The Clueston Test by Kate Wilhelm. This is only my uh, second ever book by Kate Wilhelm, so I'm very much looking forward to it. But until then, I hope that you'll remember that if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world.